Tonight, we're going to take a look at uh, chapter 10 of Daniel. So if you have your Bible, it's not as long of a chapter as some of the previous ones that we have been looking at. Uh, but don't let that fool you because you get into chapter 11 and it's kind of twice the length of chapter 10. So we've been trying to take a chapter a week in the book and next week will be a little bit longer chapter. But what we're going to see here in chapter 10 is a vision and it's the last vision that is recorded in the book of Daniel. But it's not just in chapter 10. It is a vision that encompasses the rest of the book, chapters 10 through 12, and it's the finale of everything that has come before, and what we find is this vision begins in chapter 10 with a conflict, and then when you get to the end of the book in chapter 12, uh, there is kind of an appendix or a, an amendment to what has been told to Daniel in chapter 10, and that's where the book finishes. So chapter 10 is a vision of a man. You can see the graphic here. Uh, we're going to discuss whether uh, this is an angel or whether this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. There's a couple of options to look at. But this vision of a man follows all of these apocalyptic visions in chapters uh, 7 through 12. And uh, we've looked at the four beasts and then uh, the two beasts. And then last week we took a look at his, Daniel's prayer. And then there was a vision of 70 weeks as he looked at uh, the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. Now tonight, um, this particular uh, vision that is given to Daniel comes on the heels of him fasting over the course of three weeks. So this last and final vision um, is an encounter with uh, a, a man. We're not told who this man is. Um, this might be another encounter of a vision that Daniel had back in chapter 7, verse 13, when he had a, an encounter with one that is called the Son of Man. Um, but uh, in that vision... Uh, it comes on the heels of uh, the other visions and dreams uh, that he had received from God. So let's just not connect these two. I just want you to be aware that this is another vision of an individual that Daniel encounters. Uh, and then the thing to think about when we're reading this chapter is to remember that there's a lot of white space in this chapter. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of details that we can't fill in. Um, in particular, uh, the details that we don't fill in is the inner relationship between the celestial realm and the terrestrial world that we live in. Uh, there seems to be a movement back and forth between the cosmic and the earthly. And this vision anticipates um, a restoration of uh, the nation of Israel at a point in time. We talked about the 490 years last week, but um, not before there is a continued conflict. As we all know, um, this area of the world has been in conflict uh, for 
centuries. And uh, this goes all the way back to the time of Babylon and Persia and Greece, under which uh, the nation of Israel labored in submission to these powers. Uh, each nation, it seems as though, in this chapter, has some type of heavenly or angelic connection. Uh, and that's where the white space is. Uh, we don't know how this works fully, but what we are seeing in this chapter is the people of uh, Israel experience uh, things that are going on on earth within their own history, but it seems to be replicated in some way in the heavenly realm. And so earthly conflict is the main theme that leads up to what I think chapter 11 is all about, uh, and that is kind of the unfolding of the Hellenistic history under the Greek rule. And it's titled in verse 20 as the book of truth. It's something that is about to unfold. So you see the last line on this slide here, the vision concerns the celestial in chapter 10, and then the terrestrial on earth in chapter 11. So it's almost as if these are two sides of the same conflict uh, because there's powers at play here. And these powers, it seems, are interacting not only in a heavenly warfare, but also with what's going on uh, on earth as well. So let's get started. Um, I want you to note again there's another chronological marker here in verse one. This has been done repeatedly in the book of Daniel. It says here, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Now, the historical details here, uh, again, defy us a little bit. Uh, this date, the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, is in direct contradiction to chapter 1, verse 21, uh, where it talks about the first year of the king uh, of, of uh, King Cyrus. Um, again, I, I mentioned this several times, the chronology serves the narrative. And you have to keep that in mind in the book of Daniel, or you're going to get really frustrated uh, to try to how, see how all the pieces interlock. Now, what's interesting in this opening verse is Daniel's captive name, Belteshazzar, um, is, is mentioned again. And that has not occurred uh, since it was used in the story of Darius back in chapter 6. So... Uh, we know that uh, the Jewish captives, and in particular the young men that were taken into Nebuchadnezzar's court, had their names changed to Babylonian names. Uh, but it didn't seem to have much of um, much of importance as the book of Daniel continued to unfold. But all of a sudden, there's a reconnection to it here. So there is something going on here. The writer wants to connect it back to the original oppressor Babylon by talking about the name change again. Maybe this is uh, talking a little bit about something 
that is an ongoing process. And this um, this great war might not be a single event, but a series of events uh, that the nation has encountered all the way from Babylon, uh, all the way through uh, the Greek empire, at least in the book of Daniel. So the chapter continues um, with this message. You'll notice here, uh, it it talks about a message uh, first before it talks about a vision. You'll notice it says, its message was true and it concerned a great war and the understanding of the message came to him. So scholars have often wondered whether this message is not just a visual thing, but an auditory type of thing that was spoken to Daniel here. He receives a message and this message concerns his people, concerns the future, and um, as long as we kind of keep the flow in mind, I think it's important uh, to remember that this is a loose connection to actual history. Um, it's, it's a way of setting up the narrative. It's a way of setting up what is to come. So uh, when there are disagreements and contradictions with other things that are recorded in history outside the Bible or um, found in archaeology. It's something that we shouldn't worry about and get on our apologetic high horse and try to say, oh, we can make this fit. It doesn't matter. This is uh, something that is written to a group of people who have labored under uh, very bad conditions uh, for a long time. And the point is to get to the hope that is found in the message that is given to Daniel from not only Jeremiah, like we talk, talked about last week, but from the vision of this man that appears to him. So let's move on. Here's the vision in chapters two through six. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. Just a, a quick time out on that. Um, he is fasting here, and that is a common thing that is found in the post-exilic literature, um, and it is also found in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, uh, the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. So there's a connection to a, a long-standing tradition that when he is mourning, he's in grief as he fasts, and he does so for three weeks, which is uh, an unusual lengthy time. Um, and there's a connection here uh, in the next verse to a similar type of experience that is found in Ezekiel chapter one. Um, they are given a vision alongside the river. And notice verse four, it says, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. 
So Daniel is given this vision of a man alongside the river. And the question becomes, who is this man? And there are really two options. Um, one is a, an appearance of an angel. Um, maybe the most obvious suggestion might be Gabriel. Uh, he appears to him and gives to him uh, visions. But the other one is, is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? When you look at the description here, what's remarkable is the similarity that is found with a vision given uh, to John the Revelator in the book of Revelation chapter one. So you should have a uh, chart that uh, is there in your notes. And I'm gonna go to chapter one of Revelation and just read that so you can kind of hear that in your ear as we look at the comparison here. So Revelation chapter one, as you know, John the Revelator, is exiled, okay, another similarity there, um, on the Isle of Patmos, and uh, he is given a vision in chapter one, and here's the description of this uh, individual. It says in verse 12 of Revelation one, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So that's a term that we also saw in the book of Daniel, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. So take a look at this chart here. There's some similarities here of the vision that Daniel had and the vision that John had. Uh, clothed in linen, there's an emphasis of uh, the garment in Revelation 1. Um, a waist girdled with gold. Um, there's a golden band around the chest of Jesus in Revelation 1. Uh, body was like burl. There's no corresponding element to that in Revelation. A face like lightning. Uh, head and hair were light, white like wool. So not exactly word for word uh, parallels, but you get the idea that there is some similar uh elements here, especially in the eyes. Eyes like torches of fire, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, feet like brass, another metal, sound of his words like the a voice of a multitude versus the voice as the sound of many waters. So this has led uh, a number of people to say, hey, this might have been um uh, Jesus that is appearing to Daniel in the context there. Uh, we don't know. Um, what we do know is that um, whatever Daniel does experience is something that leaves him intimidated. And that's the same that happens to John in Revelation chapter one. There's an element of fear. Uh, it's overwhelming. It is something uh, that is uh, 
you don't know whether to uh, be in awe or be uh, trembling uh, in what is being seen. So it might be the angel Gabriel. Um, he appeared to Daniel on previous occasions, but it might be Christ. Now, that's kind of beside the point. The the appearance is so that he receives a vision. And the vision is one that's going to ultimately leave him, um, I guess, just short of breath more than anything. Uh, they are, these visions are something that you wonder if they have um, any, any ability uh, for comfort at this point initially. So let's take a look at it. Let me let me first see if you have some comments before I move to the next slide. So thoughts there. So the next thing in the chapter that we see is the impact of the vision in verse seven down through verse 11. So notice it says, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it. But such terror, interestingly enough, overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep my face to the ground. So this description that Daniel is talking about here uh, leaves him trembling. Now, interestingly enough, SD has been looking just various things online and a couple of things that she has shown me recently that's kind of popped up on Facebook is what we might call religious or psychological experiences that often leave people kind of slain in the spirit. Um, in some of these cases, it's almost humorous. Uh, they're dancing in the spirit of the Lord and and all, all this type of thing it brings about, I guess, a suggestion of there are times when religion and what's experienced through religion can have such an overwhelming effect. So um, I, I would like for Bud and Shelley to comment on why you felt an extra presence at the Wailing Wall here. Um, can you comment a little bit more on that? Because that's an experience I think a lot of people have. When they go to the Wailing Wall, maybe they write something on a piece of paper and they slip it into the the seams of the mortar. But can you can you elaborate a little bit about what you felt? I I just felt a definite presence. It brought me to tears. Okay. I put my hand on the wall and I was praying. And the only other time I've really felt God's presence like that was when I was having my conversation with him about whether it was okay for people to be gay. Uh -huh. I really felt he was talking to me then. Okay. 
Excellent. Now, I, I was too nervous. Yeah, I was just trying to keep an eye on Shelly. <laughs> so I, I didn't have the opportunity to feel a presence. Because we you had to split. You had to go to two, there's two different guys, women and men go to two different parts of the wall. Because oh. of the um, orthodox yeah. aspect of it. Okay. I didn't realize I, I, that. I didn't feel God's presence exactly, but you know, when we went to the, the Sea of Galilee, that was very... You mean the Jordan River? No, it's the Sea of Galilee. We drove right next to well, it. Well, he drove next to it, yeah. yeah. But that, somehow, I think I could envision all the things happening there. It's just, it was very much, it appeared very much like you envision it as, you know, as described in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, so that was a more of a... Now, have have has anyone had an opportunity to, let's say, go someplace to, like the... Uh, the uh, Vietnam wall memorial wall in Washington, DC. And you see individuals there a lot of times are touching the wall, feeling mm -hmm. the impact of, and the emotion uh, of that comes over them in that type of setting. Have, have any, has anyone had any experience like that uh, mm -hmm. in any context? Mm -hmm. um, I'm just trying to, see if there's a connection here to how we are wired uh, when we come to a place of significance and we put our hand on it or something and, and we are overwhelmed by um, the experience. Has anybody else had anything like that ever happened to them? We've been to the American Cemetery in Cambridge, England, which has a big wall with people's names on it. Mm -hmm. And it's white crosses as far as you, you can see. Mm -hmm. And I felt nothing like that. I've never been to war, though. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I can imagine people touching that wall and grieving. Mm -hmm. But what I experienced was not grief. Mm -hmm. It was being so overwhelmed by the presence of God. Okay, good. That's helpful. Because I think that's what's happening to Daniel here, is he he has this vision, and he's overwhelmed by it. I, the interesting thing that I see in the text here is that he's the only one that sees the vision, but the others around him, whoever they may be, uh, are filled with fear. And they flee. It's almost like, uh, you know, when everybody fled Jesus, <laughs> you know, there's uh, terror overwhelmed them uh, that they fled and they hid themselves, it says in verse seven. Um, so it's interesting, the impact, I think, of these experiences. And um, it, it looks as though it just leaves Daniel spent emotionally physically um and he is so uh wrung out emotionally and physically that um the angel verse 10 touches him and uh helps him it says here in verse 10 a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees he said daniel you are highly esteemed Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent 
to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. So this is just an overwhelming emotional experience that Daniel had. But his experience also impacted those that were around him so that they they took off, um, which is kind of interesting. Um if, you know, most most of us, ha our experience within Christianity is has been in non-charismatic settings. And if you've ever gone into a charismatic or Pentecostal type setting and experienced worship in a, a church or, uh, mm -hmm. or another setting, um, where they're speaking in tongues or there's dancing in the spirit or something along those lines, it, it makes you feel weird. I, I, it's I, what, what's going on here. And, you know, um, some people, they just, they freak out and they say, I, you know, I'm out of here type thing. Um, I think the older you get in your faith, that doesn't, that doesn't bother me anymore. Um, I mean, if that's their experience, that's their experience. But it, you know, when you're first exposed to it, I think sometimes it can be very, it can be very intimidating and uh, it can bring all kinds of questions into your mind about, is this legit or is this not legit or where's this coming from? That type of thing. So um, it's just, it's one of those things I think is a parallel to what happened to Daniel here. However, that vision impacted him. It also impacted the others. That's my point. And they they take off as a result of it. Some thoughts? Well, when we, the three older kids were around, John wasn't around yet. Um, we visited a church and we literally saw people being thrown across the room, not mm. physically thrown, but somehow supernatural power. Mm. Thrown. Mm. And we wanted to flee as fast as we could, but okay. since we knew somebody there, we kind of had to hold our ground. So you made it through the whole thing. Yeah, well, it seemed mm -hmm. like 10 hours, but it was probably two. It was kind of creepy, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you start to see physical manifestations like that, and let's face it, I still get uh, I still get a weird feeling about um, um, healer, healers that you see on TV. And oh, they yeah. do a lot of strange antics, you know, that type of thing. I, so you have to be careful. But what I'm saying here in Daniel 10, uh, Daniel has something going on that has not only left him exhausted, but has left others perplexed. And um, this vision that he has is something that is going to be unfolding through the rest of the book as to what the future holds but um he's strengthened with kind of as i say here on the slide kind of celestial first aid uh, it helps him up uh, you know gets him calmed down enough to um, then receive what 
the vision is all about. So that's what the rest of the chapter is. Any thoughts before I move on here? Okay, so now we come to, I think, is um, the, the, the essential elements of this chapter. Um, it's kind of a call to arms because there's a war that's going to take place. And verses 12 and 13, I think, is at the very center of this idea of angelic warfare that's going on. Uh, it's a key to the to this chapter. And it might get us feeling a little bit weird because it's almost as though um, there's this cosmic power that's going on uh, that has influence over people on earth as well. So let's take a look, uh, verse 12 and 13. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. So here is an answer to his prayers. Remember, we saw Daniel praying three times a day with a window open. That got him in trouble, actually got him thrown into a lion's den. Um, he continues to pray. He, and now it's associated also with fasting. And, um, and then it says here in verse 13. Now, this is the key verse of the chapter. But the prince of the Persian kingdom restricted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Okay, verse 13 sets a couple things up for us to think about. If this is a vision of Jesus, he is almost overwhelmed by the prince of the Persian kingdom. Now, is that an angelic realm or is that human leaders? That's the key question that comes up here. Be now, in my, in my NIV Bible, it doesn't take a notation of that, but in the uh, New Revised Standard Version, it's interesting that the footnote to this um, tells us here that uh, the, it can be translated uh, kings, plural, of the Persian kingdom. So it has led to a discussion are these human leaders or is this an angelic representation? Now, Michael is named here, one of the angels, and there's a conflict going on. And Michael comes to the aid of the, this man that was seen in the vision. So that has led some scholars to say that's probably not Jesus. It's probably another angel. Michael's coming to the aid of this man who is in conflict with the prince of the Persian kingdom that resisted um, this, this one that Daniel saw in the vision for 21 days, it says. So it's a prolonged battle that's going on here. Um, Daniel's told to not fear. Um and there's an answer to his prayers. But verse 13 
has a notion that is sometimes found in some of the apocalyptic genre writings. And it's the idea that nations have spiritual counterparts, that is, uh, angels, or we might call some demons, uh, that uh, influence uh, that particular nation. Um, there are a couple of cross-references um, in a couple of apocalyptic-type literature, Ecclesiasticus, chapter 17, verse 17, and Jubilees, uh, chapter 15, 31, and 32, that makes this uh, similar type of notion that nations have spiritual uh, beings that are territorial, that have power over certain um, elements of geography. Uh, and I, and the, my last slide tonight is going to bring this idea back into, is that what we're seeing right now in the current war in the Middle East? Is there... Is there some supernatural influence upon uh, areas that is in constant conflict with each other? Let's put that on pause. We'll come back to it. But what you see here has been debated by a lot of different scholars. But in the context, maybe this specific mention of Michael and the assumed uh, appearance of Gabriel uh in direct relationship to the Persian Empire might be uh, a connection uh, to one of two things, either an angelic versus human interaction. These are chief princes um, and these are crown princes, if you will, that are resisting uh, God's rule and his kingdom. Or these these are and angels that are in conflict with one another. So you can see at the bottom of the slide here, I just put, keep in mind that the setting of this vision is within the reign of Cyrus. And although this is a clearly fictional account from the perspective of a second century uh, um, era, it the combination of these chronological notes and the image of these struggles with Persia is very real to the people. And also Ezra and Nehemiah mentioned that even under the Persians, uh, the Jews were slaves. You know, a lot is made about after Babylon is conquered uh, by the Medes and Persians, Cyrus comes to the throne and he allows a remnant of people to return back to the land. And um, under Ezra and Nehemiah, there's the effort to uh, rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But what's an interesting notation is right here in Nehemiah 9:36 and Ezra 9 verses 8 and 9, even though they were allowed to go back to their own land, they still saw themselves as slaves. They were not free people. They saw themselves as slaves to the Persians. And they were in service to the greater interest of the Persian Empire than their own um, their own uh, people, their own government, and their own rebuilding. So it, it's interesting here, this conflict element, this genre of conflict, is something that seems to be suggesting 
not only earthly powers in conflict with one another, but some interaction with the supernatural as well. Any thoughts or questions, comments there? So maybe here's one way of looking at it. So if this is battle between angels, um, does that suggest there are guardian angels of Israel? And are they in battle with not only the prince of the Persian kingdom, but if you uh, skip your eyes down to verse 20, there's a second one that's called the prince of Greece as well. So Michael may have been in conflict with an angel that is also found in later Jewish and even Christian literature. Um, you'll find here uh, a reference to First Enoch chapter 9, verse 1. And in the caves that um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran, there's also um, a scroll that was found that was called the Qumran War Scroll as well. And it details a lot of information like this. Now, what's fascinating is Revelation 12, 7, where there is a conflict with heaven with a dragon that uh, we're told about. And the dragon, let me read it for you, in Revelation chapter 12, it says here, let's see if I can get to it. So first of all, chapter 12 talks about a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of stars on her head. And she's pregnant and cries out in pain as she's about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the heavens, an enormous red uh, dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. And its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. A lot of scholars think that this is the fall of Satan and uh, the emissaries of Satan fall with him. Then in verse seven, it says this, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down that the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So let me make a connection back to a, the message that I gave on Sunday morning. When we were talking about uh, sin, what is sin? Um, chaos, the chaos um that is experienced on earth appears long before Adam and Eve. It's there in the very first chapter of Genesis when there's the chaotic waters. What we're doing is trying to fill in some of the blank spaces. Is there something in reference there or hinted at uh, of the fall of Satan and uh, the type of rebellion that is introduced in the heavenly realms that eventually makes its way into the earthly experience. Um, so it's a it's an interesting, interesting connection here. And in verse 20, there's a second uh, angel um, of the prince of Greece could possibly be talking about the Seleucid Empire. So you have the Persians and then in Greece, one wing of the Greece empire is the Seleucids. 
what we don't know is how all of this plays out in a time-space dimension. What we, what we see, though, in verse 21 is, uh, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. We don't even know what that is. But there is a corresponding piece of literature called the Babylonian Tablet of Destinies uh, that has been found that is kind of dictating a concept of history uh, and what is to come. So well, here's what I'm trying to tell you. There's a lot of blanks that we don't understand, but it's a fascinating um, it's a fascinating chapter because it has supernatural elements that are here that relate to us in our experience on Earth. Thoughts? Okay, let's come back to Daniel 10. And here's how the chapter continues. Verse 14. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concern a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. This is very similar to what happens to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. I said to the one standing before me, I'm over, I, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. You are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong. Be strong. Um, so we're finally told that this vision is about the future. Now, the question becomes, is it the near future within the life of Daniel, or is it the far future? Because when we get to chapter 11, we're going to come back again to that question of what is called eschatology, how we see this passage relating to the end of time. Um, this particular comment here is a time yet to come in the NIV in verse 14, a time yet to come. That could be within the next few hundred years of Daniel's life rather than thinking about the end of days all the way being the end of history. But Gabriel's announcement here um, is to touch Daniel so that he will continue to communicate what he has seen, what he has heard from the angel. And I think ultimately this is to give the people of Israel uh, a, a source of hope, a source of comfort. Um, so this vision projects, I think, a history upon the drama of kings and clashing armies and Yet at the same time, it it gives to us a perspective that God's in control, uh, that things don't happen necessarily by chance or prematurely, but it unfolds within the time of God. So it, the, uh, the chapter ends here 
simply by saying this. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of, P of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. And that's where it stops. This is an unfortunate chapter break because the rest of that chapter should go with chapter 11. Um, but it says here, no one supports me against them except Michael, your prince, which is in parentheses. But verse one of chapter 11 is also in parentheses. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. So that's kind of an unfortunate chapter break there. Uh, it should probably be a period at the end of the book of truth. So what's coming in chapter 11 is a part of this book of truth that is still to come. So here's where I want us to think first about a theological assessment of this chapter and then a contemporary element to it. So the first thing that I think is coming out in this chapter is that the fate of the nations is not just decided on earth, but there's a heavenly element to it. And somehow it connects to prayer. And perhaps that is the best thing that we can do uh, in light of a, a potential war that could pull other nations into uh, that conflict. So don't underestimate the power of prayer and don't underestimate its role in spiritual warfare. Um, so God sends this message to Daniel. <laughs> we come back again and say, okay, who's this describing? Well, if it's an angel, that angel is of a high rank and he is described in a way that I think is fulfilled in the person of Jesus in Revelation chapter one. So if this is not a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, it certainly anticipates another vision that John will receive in the book of Revelation. Now, who is the prince of Persia? Or who are the uh, kings of Persia, you might say? Uh, the Prince of Persia could be any one of these four that you see here, Cyrus, Cambyses, Smyrdes, or Darius. Um, or it could be um, this heavenly supernatural element that has influence upon this period of time from Cyrus the Great all the way through Darius. And that runs from 576 all the way to 486 BCE. Now, does this chapter suggest to us that there are supernatural powers behind earthly powers? In a couple of the references in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Isaiah, it seems to suggest that there's a power behind the powers. And, that, um, and that's the, the two references in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and I apologize, I can't recall the chapters off the top of my head, that most theologians um, suggest that this is Satan that has fallen and is revealing himself through the earthly empires. Um, if you want to look that up, you, you can say, you know, where's the fall of Satan? There will be a reference to 
that in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Ezekiel. That'll pop up on your computer. So that brings me to this last thing. And I'd love for us to interact on this a little bit. Knowing what we know of chapter 10, is there any connection to this ongoing trouble that continues in a plot of land that is so small, relatively speaking, to the rest of the world? Um, when you think about it, uh, the nation of Israel is almost in the news every day, okay? And um, it's such a small, it's it's equivalent to one of the um, East Coast type states, Delaware or Rhode Island in size. I mean, it's not big at all. And yet it continues to grab our attention and it continues to dominate the news cycle. Could there be something more that is going on than just two people, two groups of people primarily that don't like each other? They come from the same DNA. They're both Semitic. Come on already. Uh, religion has a lot to play into this. And, um, and the idea of the religion between Islam and Judaism seems to dictate a lot of the factors that are behind a lot of the policies and uh, politics and uh, all of these things. You'll notice here um, two, two things that um, are no, mentioned here. Play. What's that? I'm sorry, I was talking to the dog. Oh, okay. Um, so I take this from, uh, oh gosh, I forgot to put the reference down here. Um, but I, I took this from uh, an article uh, I think it was CNN, it, that says the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is driven by several factors, ethnic, national, historical, and religious. Several religious factors pertinent to Islam and Judaism dictate the role of religion as the main factor in the conflict, notably including the sanctity of holy sites and the apocalyptic narratives of both religions which are detrimental to any potential for lasting peace between the two sides. Religion-based rumors propagated by extremists in the media and social media about the hidden religious agendas of the other side exacerbate these tensions. Examples include rumors about a Jewish plan to destroy Al-Aqsa Mosque and build the Jewish Third Temple on its remnants and on the other side, rumors that Muslims hold the annihilation of Jews at the core of their belief. To curb, uh, to contribute to curbing the religious violence in this conflict, several interventions can be considered. Interfaith dialogue, this is mine. The, this up here was CNN's um, quote. Um, but to contribute to curbing the religious violence in this conflict, several interventions can be considered. Interfaith dialogue, the remembrance of past fruitful cooperation between Jews and Muslims ever since the 7th century, and focusing on religious texts uh, uh, asserting positive and tolerant religious values and reinforcing these values in educational systems on both sides. So I'm curious 
I'm going to take off the PowerPoint so that we all can see each other a little bit better. And let's talk about how this chapter might relate uh, to uh, the ongoing um, problem that we see going on in the Middle East right now. So do you, do you have some thoughts on any of that? Do you see any connections between uh, this particular chapter and maybe what we see in the news cycle and in particular this this situation that has just started on Saturday this past week anybody have I just wanted to say something I um although I don't agree with the violence um the Palestinians gave up their land and there was originally supposed to be they had a small section and little by little they took over and took over and pretty soon they became the long-standing largest refugee group. Yeah. And in their own land, they have to check, go through checkpoints very, very early in the morning, like cattle, yeah. to get into Israel, which was their land. And then, and we are supporting them. Everyone's supporting them financially. And so um, how would you, how would we you like mean, it? You mean Israel, supporting Israel? Yeah, yeah. And how would we like it if, Someone said, yeah, I know this was your land, but now you're going to have to, you know, stay at the uh, inside a fence at the Y and to come yeah. back out to here, you're going to have to go through a checkpoint. And, you know, I don't I don't agree with the violence, but. Well, Hamas has done the average Palestinians no favors. Yeah. Because of the way they have used terror and uh, bloodshed, mm -hmm. you know, um, my take on this is while we recognize the the right for Israel to exist and their history is a majority of, of the Old Testament, yet at the same time, um, their treatment of the average Palestinian, I don't mean the, the terrorists, is kind of like a form of apartheid in the sense that they keep them confined and and they and and I understand there the fear on the Jewish side, you know, the terrorists um create all these problems that um that they can't be trusted. And what Hamas has just done might forever uh, affect whether the Jews could ever trust the Palestinians again. But that's not your average pal Palestinian. That's not the mom and the dad that's trying to raise a family and that type of thing. And, and I think one of the things that you have to remember is that when Israel does fight back, they have the power, the financial backing, the weaponry, um, yeah to always um to always uh escalate um the amount of um the amount of not just violence but the amount of uh bloodshed and death and all that type of thing so i think there's fault on both sides i fault mostly hamas for being such stupid morons that now, um, you know, Israel is going to cut off their water, cut off their food supply. And it's just things like that, that I think is just as terrible. That's why 
I'm, I've been trying to say, maybe this chapter is telling us something about wow. the powers behind uh, some empires to make such stupid, foolish decisions that peace can never be negotiated. You know, I, is that what you're thinking a little bit there? Well, too, also, um, they also have the early um, Hebrew uh, Torah and the as in the Quran is the also the base in the same city so they feel they have a claim and but then you think that they put them in these um like there's refugees and then build wall and then all their infrastructure uh so i don't know how they couldn't you know rebel against that i don't know i mean it's just yes and i I just have a feeling for the other side yeah and I think we, as Christians, a lot of times um, we back Israel no matter what. I, I think there's a there should be an accountability there as well. Um, you know, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and the whole Holy Land, both sides and our side, not just their <laughs> side, our side has to be accountable to what makes for peace and if you're going to treat uh the if you're going to treat average palestinians like cattle mm-hmm. and animals yeah. and the defense minister just basically said they're animals they are uh, you know and like get a cattle cattle shoot yeah really yeah and into their own land that goes back again to my message on Sunday, if you ever, if you want to look it up. Uh, it's the idea that the original sin that leads to sins, plural, is the dehumanization of, of human beings. So that everything that we do to each other, whether we rob or steal or murder or whatever, all of these things come out of the fact that we do not honor other people as being made in the image of God. And so... These type of things are, um, when you, you know, so there's both sides here. I, one of the video clips that I saw on the Israeli side of, uh, of what they did to a man that was already dead in the street. They took the vehicle, backed it up and kept going back, uh, uh, running over him. Well, that's just desecrating the body. That's the man was already dead. Um, so both sides, Hamas, morons, absolute morons. Um, But, uh, you know, how it will be responded by um, in, in, in the power structures of Israel could really set up for a much larger war than just these two groups. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm afraid of. You know, we went to Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. which is in the Palestinian state. Yeah. And when we crossed over, the tour guide handed the tour over. She stayed with us, but she handed the tour over to a Palestinian tour guide. Uh-huh. And he took us through. There was no animosity we could see between the peoples. At that point. And this was only a week before things went south. I, it's not the people. It's 
the terrorist organization. Yeah. And I, I, there are, there has to be evil entities around. They went in and they, they went into a kibbutz and beheaded a baby. Yeah. If that's pure evil. Yes. Demonic. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the feet on the ground, and I've heard this through various uh, pastors and stuff that have taken tours of, uh, of people mm -hmm. over uh, to the Holy Land is your average Palestinian, your average Israeli, they're, you know what their concerns are? The same concerns we all have. Oh, yeah. Good oh, jobs, yeah. benefits, raising their family, education. I, you know. Food on the table. Exactly. I mean, a lot of people are hand to mouth over there, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and they depend on the tourism and they depend on you know goodwill and it's this just it's those people who are suffering now oh mm -hmm. and they're going to suffer greatly for my oh, yeah. my thinking is a long time but yeah. oh very long yeah anybody else have any thoughts on on this appreciate your input No? Okay. Well, then that's all I have for tonight. And um, now next week, the chapter's longer, but it's very, it's a very instrumental type of passage because of its influence in a variety of ways upon um, eschatology, which is kind of a study of last things. So, all right. Well, thanks for being with us and um, we'll call it a night. How's that? Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.